imagination is everything in my classroom. And I think it's really important to understand that imagination supersedes just about every other skill in science. And we need to unlock that somehow. And when they're, they haven't been trained in a science class to be imaginative, it's difficult, right? Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Matthew Worwood. And my name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. This is the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. On this podcast, we'll be talking about various creativity topics and how they relate to the field of education. We'll be talking with scholars, educators, and resident experts about their work, challenges they face, and exploring new perspectives of creativity. All with the goal to help fuel a more rich and informed discussion that provides teachers, administrators, and emerging scholars with the information they need to infuse creativity into teaching and learning. So let's begin. Hello and welcome to another episode. And on this episode, we welcome Dr. Colleen Kelly, who is the creator and founder of Kids Chemical Solutions, which is a comic book based curriculum for kids ages 8 to 108. Her journey as a chemist began at the University of Richmond, where she received her BS in chemistry. She fell in love with the world of discovery and research and wanted to continue to explore more chemistry, so she completed her PhD in chemistry at Penn State University at the age of 24. Fast forward 30 years to the tail end of her career teaching chemistry at the University of Arizona, Colleen finds herself captivated by the question, why do my students think chemistry is so hard? What she has discovered is that learning chemistry is very much like learning how to read, and she created the term molecular literacy to describe how chemistry is best understood. Colleen, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. It's so great to be here. So Cindy and I spend a lot of time on the show discussing and celebrating the tremendous creativity within the education profession. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your story, particularly you know, writing chemistry comic books a little bit about the problem that you were trying to address and perhaps a little bit about your process as well. Right. Sure. Yeah. So I've been teaching for eons um, back in the 1800s. No, just kidding. <laughs> 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 but for 30 years. And um, I could not understand why my students were struggling to understand what I thought was so beautiful, simple, and elegant. And the language I was using was organic chemistry, which is based on symbols and shapes. And there's a what I see to be a fun storyline going through all of these molecular transitions into new molecules and synthesis. So I have brilliant students in my classroom year after year. They're all going into medicine. They study hard. They've been trying to do science since they were a toddler. They, they're ready for this. So it's not a lack of motivation or a lack of interest or you know, they have goals, they're ready to go and they're eager. And yet when they get to organic chemistry, they still take a, a nosedive <laughs> and it, it becomes their biggest challenge. So I tried to figure out what was happening. What I realized is that I'm seeing a story in my brain that they're not seeing. And so it's really hard to communicate the unicorn when they can't see the unicorn. <laughs> There's quite a bit of imagination that needs to be transmitted. So my creativity mode came on and I started to tell stories about the molecules. I started to make the molecules into characters that had funny traits. And initially I was a young mother, so I was watching a lot of Winnie the Pooh. 
So fluorine would be like piglet, like kind of needy and scared. And bromine would be like Winnie the Pooh, kind of big, round and puffy and could wander off on his own. And um, that concept is true. And there's a, a something called a leaving group in organic chemistry. So they, they would understand what was a better leaving group. And like who's more likely to leave, bromine or fluorine? And if they could say piglet or poo, they would know who's always wandering around in the 100-acre wood all by himself without a care in the world. So I kept going with these stories, and they really did parallel my son's age because then they became very Shrek-based for a while, and we talked a lot about the age of Shrek. And then eventually I started just creating my own characters and my own stories. So um, right about 2015, my students were at the age where they could come back and tell me that the stories were sticking. My current students were saying, Dr. Kelly, you should write these. These are great stories. You really should get these out into the world. They're super helpful. So I just began writing. And at first I thought, well, this is going to be such a good textbook. (laughs) So I was writing the stories in a textbook content. I thought every textbook publisher in the world's going to want this. And yeah, I got like 105 rejections. I don't know, like a million rejections. Nobody wanted it because this is a very serious course. I mean, how dare I bring characters into chemistry because it's just so serious. And we don't want everyone to understand that, but I I didn't understand. But anyway, so one comment I did get was that my, my textbook was very dialogue rich. So a dialogue-rich format is a comic book, right? So if you're going to write something that's very dialogue-rich, a comic book fits that. There's also a lot of opportunity for imagery. So the combination of imagery and dialogue led to me having to learn from YouTube and every other resource on the internet how to how to write a comic book. So I just took it from there. So Colleen, how many comic books have you created at this point? And can you give us an example of one of them? Oh, great. Sure. Yeah. So right now there are, it's a series of 10 comic books that scaffold the learning objectives found in a 100 level chemistry course at a university or an AP course, or just that first introductory course. Um, There are four that are currently published and available for sale. And the other six are in the hopper (laughs) coming soon. Uh, The art is really delicate and uh, I'm very appreciative of artists now because as long as it takes to write something, the art takes maybe six times that amount. So we have our third story is um, the case of the pillaging pirates. Each is a mystery. So they're all mysteries. I was a huge Encyclopedia Brown fan when I was growing up. So they're always the case of the something. And I like alliteration because who doesn't? So uh, the pillaging pirates is a parody on the princess bride. And so um, they're looking for the six electron man, which is, you know, the six fingered man. If you're a Princess Bride fan, you'll get all the corny jokes in there. If you're not, it'll go over your head and you should go watch the Princess Bride because (laughs) there's a a lot of references. But Sir Carbon is a six electron man and Carbon has six electrons. So that's why he's the six electron man. He's also the man in black because Carbon is coal. So what I've done is I've created characters and storylines that bring the imagery of the actual element or molecule that they're representing in the most accurate way possible so that I'm not promoting misconceptions. So, you know, the man in black carbon is black. And so 
Uh, Sir Carbon is wearing a graphene suit and graphene is carbon. So I really do bring out specific details in each of my characters so that as students are reading, they're, they're subliminally getting all kinds of other message about the element or the molecule as a character. I think that's incredible. And I have to say, as soon as we log off, I'm going to order these books because my son is currently in chemistry and The Princess Bride is his favorite movie. So I am so excited to actually go through that literature with him and reference the fact that I actually know the author. So it sounds just amazing. Thank you. And Cindy, just to follow up, I mean, first of all, it's amazing to see you having so much fun. I mean, you, your your face is really lighting up. So I'm making this connection to, to here you are as an educator identifying an instructional challenge. And then you've kind of gone on this creative journey on how to solve this challenge. And you've brought in humor and you've brought the storytelling component. And I sit here as well. And I think there's there's some other examples out there. I, I, I've been so amazed at how much my six-year-old has mastered around math purely because he fell in love with number blocks. And so this, this, I don't know how familiar you are with number blocks, but there's these kind of like cartoon characters that come together. What do you think it is about this kind of like fun storytelling approach to instruction that makes it so appealing to students? In the absence of characters, what I realized is chemistry is invisible, right? So I'm trying to describe something with stick figures on a whiteboard. I draw a lot. And Without that connection, imagination is everything in my classroom. And I think it's really important to understand that imagination supersedes just about every other skill in science. And we need to unlock that somehow. And when they're, they haven't been trained in a science class to be imaginative, it's difficult, right? So for me, I think the characters are appealing to students because it gets, it's a portal to seeing the molecule in their brain. Because without that, everybody is just memorized. They say a lot of times I hear, I've heard this a zillion times, you know, organic chemistry is just memorization. It it is only because that's the only um, neural pathway they have open to them to even try to get through the class. So if we open up the imagination about it and they can see the transformations and the action and the activity in their imagination, then the whole class is opened up to them and the discipline then becomes, discipline meaning subject matter, becomes accessible. Do you want to bring more creative and critical thinking into your school? Look no further than our podcast sponsor, Curiosity to Create. Curiosity to Create is a nonprofit organization dedicated to engaging professional development for school districts and empowering educators through online courses and personal coaching. And if you're craving a community of creative educators who love new ideas, don't miss out on their creative thinking network. Get access to monthly webinars, creative lesson plans, and a supportive community all focused on fostering creativity in the classroom. To learn more, check out curiositytocreate.org or check out the links in the show notes for this episode. So Colleen, the next thing we want to talk about is molecular literacy, which is a term that you framed. And I'm afraid to hear the definition because I'm afraid I'm going to say I'm molecularly illiterate, if that's possible. It is possible. And you're going to join the 300 pre-meds that I have in front of me every semester as also molecularly illiterate. And I made up this term because the world is afraid of the word word chemistry. 
right? So if, if I want to be soft and gentle and accessible to the world and have everyone come on board with an understanding of chemistry, I have to get rid of the word chemistry, ironically, because it just wreaks fear into everybody. But if I say molecular literacy, literacy brings people in. Everyone wants to be literate, right? There's that huge, like, I want to be literate. What is this about? And then molecule or molecular is just a softer way to say chemistry. Um, but really, the definition is more of a description than a definition. If you consider the periodic table of elements, the alphabet of science, right? So those are letters. Uh, we call them symbols. And if you put two of them together or three or four, you get a formula, which becomes a word, right? So just like when you're teaching kids how to read, they take two letters, three letters, put them together, and it becomes a word. So the foundations of reading are the same as the foundations of learning chemistry, the foundations of learning how to read. They parallel each other. And this is from my research. And then we go on from there, right? So now we have formulas, which are words, and we put those together to get a sentence. And that becomes a chemical equation. And a chemical equation does describe an event, just like a sentence describes an event. And we put more sentences together or more equations. We get a mechanism. A mechanism is like a paragraph. And we go on from there. But what, we, what we're doing is when we're not teaching it in that context, there's this notion that it's not important to spend time on the periodic table. And that would be like in kindergarten, not spending time on the alphabet. Like, yes, we spend time on the alphabet. <laughs> Because there's, I keep hearing, well, we can look that up or that's available. Why would you have them memorize that? I'm like, well, that's fine. So let's not have our kindergartens memorize their letters then. You know, <laughs> there is some skill set that's involved. And if we scaffold it gently and find that it parallels learning how to read, we're all going to become molecularly literate. And I must say that I have a tongue twister on that one. <laughs> I stumble over it as much as anyone else. Beyond term. So that's why I had Cindy ask the question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I think what I've realized is I, I taught fourth grade with this curriculum for 14 weeks. And right, right about the age of nine, students transition from learning how to read to using reading to learn right? There's that transition where they can now read to learn new things as opposed to just learning how to read. And so that neural pathway is open to them. So I went right into that age group and realized that they know how to learn how to read. They just mastered that. So I'm going to show them how to read with chemical symbols and, and go through that same progression. And it's very easy for them, especially when all their peers aren't saying to them, oh, dude, you're in chemistry. You're going to fail that. You know, nobody in fourth grade is saying that to them. So <laughs> they, they've got an open mind and they go through that natural progression. So earlier, Matt mentioned eight to 108. I think most of the world has, if they're not chemists, has somehow or another, for lack of a better word, faked their way through chemistry and got to the other end. Um, I hear parents all the time, the advice they give to their children is just get through it. What is that? Like, we need to understand our world. <laughs> you know, when I mention a carbon footprint and my students look down at the ground to try and find a black footprint, I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not what we're talking about with a carbon footprint. It literally is not a footprint in the ground, guys. You know, it's a lot more than that. So I really think our, our world's problems need to be solved with the molecular literacy 
And it's okay to say that you don't have that. We're all beginners and let's bring our beginner mindset into the comic books and start. Because I think we've lost most of our population on this topic. Have you considered how you could make your textbooks available for an audience that is perhaps post-college, such as parents, like Cindy was referencing? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're available for everyone. They're just, you know, they're like a normal book you would buy on a website. I'm on a mission right now to have them donated to as many libraries as, as possible just for that reason. The dream, right, is when parents are reading the comic books, like Matt, if you would read it with your six-year-old, you then become, you know, there's molecularly literate as well. And so it's just like if you wanted to learn how to play the guitar and you didn't know how to play the guitar and your, your kid wanted to do it too, you do it together. Intergenerational learning is incredibly powerful. So I, I think there's accessibility to all age groups with this platform. I'm really pumped about this idea. I have no question. I have no question at all. But but I do want to quickly say, wow, I'm pumped. I In so much in my work, I try and promote this concept of teacher creativity. And I, you know, we, we've had people like James Kaufman come on and talk about the 4C model of creativity, which kind of breaks creativity down to mini C, little C, pro C, and big C. And big C is less of a conversation because it's the type of creative outcomes that endure beyond the lifetime of the individual. But when we look at mini C, little C, and pro C, really it's about the kind of impact that those outcomes have within their immediate environment. And quite often I talk about this idea of mini C from a teaching perspective. It's about those discoveries that we make, including identifying problems and generating ideas on how we can address those problems. Little C is when we begin to go and enact those ideas and perhaps have an impact in our immediate classroom environment and maybe other people kind of come in and say, oh, this is a really great idea. I quite often talk to teachers about this idea of promoting change at the grassroots level involve you going out and sharing the success that you've had. When you know you've kind of got a solution to an instructional problem, an instructional problem that might be impacting other educators, that you you find a way of getting it out there. And to me, I think this story is a great example of that pro-C creativity because you've kind of identified a problem You've, you've identified about how this problem is impacting so many people and why it's important to address. And then you've gone on this journey, which I'm assuming has taken a significant time, as you referenced, even putting together the artwork. And now you've got this outcome and this outcome is incredible. And it's expanding beyond the school. We're talking about parents purchasing it and interacting with their children. So I have absolutely no question. And hopefully Cindy can come up and follow up with a question. But what I do want to do is take this moment and say congratulations on, on such a wonderful creative journey as an educator. Thank you. Matt, I completely agree with you. I feel so inspired, especially about the intergenerational, because I was just thinking about sitting there reading the comic books with my 15-year-old son and how much fun that would be and how I'm always looking for ways in which I can continue learning about things I don't know about. And I think there are probably a lot of people out there listening that are like myself, that are feeling molecularly illiterate and thinking, yes, you're right. I, I need to understand the world and how it works. And I need to go back to school. And, and I think one of the things that's great about being a parent is you sort of get to relive these opportunities to learn things that you learned, you know, for me 25, 30 years ago. And now I get to do it with my son. But even if I didn't have children, that I would still be able to have this opportunity to learn it in a fun way this time and an engaging way and something that's more than just memorizing and 
you know, identifying things because they are so, and and th- that's how it's always been. So one of the things that I particularly like about what you've done is, as Matt said, identifying this problem, but then also saying, I want to improve on this and I have the knowledge to do that. So I think for our teachers back at home to think about those things that just aren't working and to break that paradigm of like, well, we've always taught chemistry this way. So we always have to continue. Like, no, you don't. You can change what you've done, especially if it didn't work, right? Because I think we get so caught up in these constraints of like, this is how I taught. This is how I was taught. Therefore, this is how I will teach. And we don't have to do that. We can shake things up and move things around and and find ways in which we can engage our students in meaningful ways. I agree. Also wasn't a question, but I am going to get into a question now. (laughs) Here's my next question for you. So what advice would you have for science educators who are feeling constrained by the curriculum and looking to add some new approaches to their practice that can promote creativity or different ways of teaching? The biggest thing for me would be to recognize that when when you are a scientist and are teaching science, you may have a level of understanding that's not going to intersect with your students unless you create an onboarding ramp and not to be afraid to create some kind of onboarding ramp that may seem less rigorous for lack of a better word. I, I have been told sometimes that uh, <laughs> that my approach is, is not rigorous, which if you look at the comic books, I did scaffold the learning objectives found. I My poppy's puzzles are a, a test I would give in November in freshman chem. I mean, they're not any different. I have not diluted the curriculum at all. But I, I would just suggest that to be gracious with your students to allow allow for an onboarding ramp for the 20 plus years you may have had over them for, for catching up, right? Because what seems easy to us is not easy to them. And they want to, to do well. And they're going to look for workarounds if you don't provide that onboarding ramp. And in, in chemistry and in most sciences, physical sciences, the onboarding ramp is math. So they'll use math because that's all they have. And and that's not really what it's about. Math is one tool. It's like, again, using the hammer for everything. It's not going to work the whole way through. And I feel in your story, you've also, you've addressed this kind of preconceived notion of what students may have before they enter a classroom, this attitude, you know, just get through it. I'm not good at it, which is in some way similar to to past conversations we've had around math. And it seems to me that you're also thinking about how you can address that. Because, of course, if you walk into a classroom with the attitude that I just need to get through this, or you walk into the classroom saying, I'm not good at this, that's going to impact your capacity to learn as well. Yes, yes, I agree. Yeah, I, I think when I walk into an auditorium with 300 students at the beginning of the semester, every one of them have has heard that. They will not go to medical school directly because of my class. So welcome me. Yeah, I always tell, I'm like, improv, you guys have nothing on trying to teach organic chemistry to get them engaged because they walk in at 8 a.m. There's no alcohol. There's nothing engaging. (laughs) And they're ready to, you know, despise the class, despise you. All things are stacked against you, and I've got I've got to win their trust first, and then you know their confidence, and then expand their minds. And, and it's a process. And if if I could just get rid of that, because I spend months trying to, to establish that in a classroom, and it, it's um, I, I wish 
that that was stopped. I wish no longer was there such a thing as a weed out course. That 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 seems like for me uh, the concept of a weed out course is an issue of civil rights, right? Like if we have one course that prohibits people from becoming a physician, why aren't we questioning that? Like why why do we say oh it's a weed out course? That's not right. There should not be a class in college that <laughs> yeah is do or die. You're paying for it. Like, why? <laughs> Out of curiosity, when do they take it as well? Because this is something that I've I've noticed is that I sometimes wonder if some of these classes come a little bit earlier in the plan of study. You know, some of these students are just transitioning to, into college. They're having to acquire a whole bunch of additional skills in order to succeed just as new adult learners. And sometimes we find ourselves in a class that could potentially be perceived as a weed out class. And we're not even really doing justification to those students because some of the reasons why they might be struggling is simply because they haven't acquired the skills they need to succeed in higher education yet. Yeah, I would agree. Except for, I would say, developmentally, we introduced this way too late. Developmentally, this is more appropriate at ages 8, 9, 10, 11, when mineral pathways are available for this kind of shape-based learning three-dimensional assessment because there's so much imagination required for it. So developmentally, it's too late. So again, I, I use music as another analogy. If I had a bunch of students in front of me and I was a music teacher, um, say an orchestra or something like that, and they had never picked up a violin at 19, right? And I said, okay, you have one semester to master the violin and then apply for violin school. <laughs> Uh, and you need to get an A. It, you can't do that at 19, right? If you want to master the violin, you start at like six, right? So if you want to become molecularly literate, you need to start at around age eight. And I use eight as the transition or the age because of reading, because it directly sits on reading. So I think we're introducing it too late. But to your point, Matt, um, without that early introduction, there are all these other challenges of being a first-year college student that also detract from the skills. But we've addressed all that. I, you know, I've been on so many committees and I've been on so many National Science Foundation grants where we've done this, that, and the other, and interventions and extra time, and none of that works. Again, if if you come to college to be a music major and you've never picked up a musical instrument, it's not going to happen. So we need to talk about mastery and the slow development of mastery over time as opposed to throwing them at them when they're in the heat of the fire. I'm trying to resist the temptation to not expand this piece too much, but I wonder if you could talk about this. Chemistry seems to be so connected to so many other disciplines. And so what I'm going away and thinking about is you're completely right. If this is the first time they're interacting you know, in, in, a, in a chem lab, and it's their first or second year in higher education, but then maybe they're looking at pursuing something around computer science. I'll be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not directly sure of the connection, but if they had chemistry at an earlier age, they're probably in a much better position to take on those classes and therefore pursue their dream in computer science. But I interact with, with some students that just don't do well in chemistry. Yeah, there are over 50 majors on a college campus that require chemistry as a prerequisite. So you're completely right. It's 50 majors. I counted. I went through our catalog. Our freshman chemistry, our first year chemistry program is 5,000 students a semester. We service huge amounts of students per semester. 
And we have 40 of those are chemistry majors. <laughs> so less than 1% are chemistry majors. So we cert- we're a big service course for that reason, because molecular literacy is the foundation for 50 other majors. And yet that foundation is lost. It, it just is, becomes a box to check and you got through it. So I, I think to your point, Matt, you're correct. Well, Colleen, we do have to wrap up this episode, but I have to say I have the biggest smile both on my face and in my in my heart and in, in the work that you're doing. I just have learned so much in this last half hour with you about chemistry and the need and, and changes. And just know that I am here to support you in whatever you're doing because I absolutely love it. Um, so we end every episode with a question, which is, what are three tips you would give to educators who want to bring creativity into their classrooms? So what three tips would you provide? I would say to explore a different discipline outside of your comfort zone yourself so you could see how that feels and how you creatively were able to learn something new, whether it's baking or guitar playing or sewing. Pick up a creative habit that's unrelated to your discipline to kind of just start getting that flowing so that you can re-examine the learning process of a skill set. And then you're going to be more connected to be able to do that. Beyond that, for me, storytelling really works, but stories come from consuming content. So read books, (laughs) read fiction, have some fun. I, I watch you know, I, I my son is now 23, but I'm back to watching Bluey because I just love Bluey. So watch some things that, that are fun and engaging and don't take yourself too seriously. Nobody needs that. <laughs> you know, nobody needs the professor in the front of the room that, that wants to elevate him or herself so much that you're not connected. So have fun fun while you're there and the creativity will come out of that. Brilliant. Well, Colleen, thank you so much. And we certainly will be posting a link on the show notes to your website and where our listeners can access the textbooks and buy the textbooks. In terms of next steps, I think, I don't know about you, Cindy, but I think this is a great episode. So if you're listening to this and you've got a colleague in the sciences, either at K through 12 or higher education, what we're asking you to do is take a link to this episode and email it to them. Because I think there's a lot in here that all science educators have something to take away from. My name is Dr. Matthew Wellwood. And my name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. This episode was produced by Matthew Warwood and Cindy Burnett. Our podcast sponsor is Curiosity to Create, and our editor is Sam Atkinson. 